The world says, go for the gusto, but scripture commands it. Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth. Man is to be diligent while he lives. He is to do all things in life to the fullest extent and with the greatest effort in order to what? Do the best job. Are you a diligent Christian in whatever you do? Where you work? What you commit yourself to? Or do you kind of just, well, you know, I hope you're diligent. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. There are some that tend to think the Bible is nothing but a book of rules and commandments of what not to do. And although God does issue warnings to avoid harmful things, those same people might be surprised to learn that Scripture exhorts believers to eat, drink, and enjoy life with a merry heart. And in today's Simple Truth study from the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon urges that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Here's Pastor Xavier to begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1 through 10. The message is entitled, Life in View of Death. Now remember that Solomon is giving to us the natural observation and conclusions of man living apart from God. As he sets his heart to see and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun in order to see if, in fact, all the things that man says bring satisfaction are true or not. So this is his experiment one at a time through human wisdom. He's going to evaluate. And he's knocking one at a time saying, nope, 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 nope. Now we come here to chapter 9. Notice first, Solomon was convinced in his heart that man cannot find out the ways God works. The beginning of verse 1. This is a repeated theme as you have seen. Still in verse 1, Solomon was convinced in his heart that the righteous and the wise, as well as their works, were in the hand of God. So the negative thing is that we can't understand the ways of God. But the positive thing is, in, in the context of the righteous, right? And the wise, the believer, is that we know that whatever goes on, whatever work, God's hands upon it. They're in God's hand. This is the positive side. What confidence, what rest, what trust, what assurance. Solomon is very aware of God and who he is throughout the book. He declares that he saw the work of God in chapter 8, verse 17. He declared that God controls the life of the righteous and the wise right here. Now, notice thirdly here, still in verse 1, that Solomon was convinced in his heart that people cannot judge the love or hate of God by the events of life. This is good. The experience in life is that bad things do happen to righteous people, yet it does not mean that God hates them. The experience in life also is that good things do happen to bad people, and it does not mean that God is blessing them out of his love. We already saw in chapter 7, verse um, 15, it says, I have seen all this, all things in my days of vanity, there is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. God allows the wicked and unbeliever to receive the benefit of their efforts and labor, even when they are dishonest. It does not mean that he condones their activity. It does not mean he loves their activity. 
It means that God is patient, sovereign, and is in no hurry to judge. And notice, secondly, he gives us the observations of life and death, verses 2 to 6. First in verse 2, life does not seem to be fair due to the fact that good and bad things happen to all people, to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and unclean, to the one who sacrifices, the one who does not, to the good and the sinner, to the one takes an oath and the one who fears an oath. So in other words, what's the hope? If all things happen to the same, the same things happen to all people, it's kind of frustrating to people, right? Notice in verse 3 and 4, he says that life seems evil and that the end is the same for all. Not only is the same things happen during life, but the end is the same for all. The righteous and the wicked, they both die. The conclusion of the man who lives apart from God is that this is evil. Both die. So if man without God lives long enough and he walks through life long enough, experiences enough things long enough, he gets to the place and says, well, what is the use? So he tells us the the nature of man is a heart full of evil. That's one of the problems. That's the main problem. The heart of man is full of evil. The basic problem in man understanding the world as it is has to do with the fact that he is a fallen creature, yet he believes that he's good. So his, his basic and beginning premise is wrong. He believes he's good, but he's fallen. Now, I don't care how good a mathematician you are, if one of your factors is off, you're never going to get the answer. Just one, one factor, two instead of a three. You'll never come up with the answer, the correct answer. The other problem is that in his professed goodness, he exalts himself above God by charging God with unfairness and declares himself greater and more merciful than God. Well, you know, I can't believe in a guy. I mean, if I was God, I wouldn't allow all these kids to get shot. I wouldn't allow all these people to die of famine. What kind of God is that? It is a problem for the natural man, isn't it? You see, it's a great problem, the inconsistencies in life. Life isn't fair. Life is very unfair, but God is very, very good. But remember, it's a fallen world. You and I are in it. We're evidence of it. (laughs) Now, notice the end regardless of one's view of God is what? Verse 3 at the end. Death. Regardless of what you think of God or I think of God, the end of you and I is death. No one gets out of here alive. Enoch and Elijah are the only two that were raptured up. And if we are the church, the generation of the church that will come, then we will be raptured. Those are the only exceptions. The hope for man is while he is alive, verse 4 says. The point is simple and clear. The one who is still alive has hope of coming to trust in God rather than to fight against him. As long as you're living, if you're here this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's great hope for you this morning. Because God is here to quicken your heart, to let you know you're a sinner and you need to repent from your sins. And as long as you're alive, there is hope for you. But the minute you die, the minute you give up your last breath, there is no more hope for you. You're lost without Christ. So life is real precious. The illustration is vivid. A living dog is better than a dead lion. You say, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) A lion is stronger than a dog. 
But when he's dead, he's no match for that dog. In other words, the key thing, he's contrasting life and death. Life is better. There's hope. There's opportunity. In this case, to come to God. There's the value of life, of life and time, of living, that you have time while you're living. Not when you're dead. When you're dead, it's too late. Only while you're living. Now, he says the dead have departed this world. In verse, uh, the rest of verse 5 there and through verse 6, he says the dead stand in sharp contrast to the living here by the word but. Okay? He says the dead know nothing. And this appears to be a wrong statement by Solomon in his limited knowledge about the dead. I'm not saying that there's a mistake in what he's saying because he's speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. But in the limited knowledge of the Old Testament, remember the Old Testament does not give full revelation of everything in different doctrines and subjects. The Old Testament does not reveal the intricate details and information about the resurrection. You remember Daniel said that the just and the unjust will rise up together? If that's all we had, we would, we, we would understand that the resurrection would happen at the same time. But as we get into the New Testament and revelation is progressive and the New Testament is the ultimate revelation, then we know that the resurrection of the just and the unjust is separated by a thousand years. But if we didn't have the New Testament, we would never know that. Not that it's wrong, but it's limited. They knew of a resurrection, but they didn't know the details about the resurrection. The same thing with life and death. Have you ever noticed how little the Old Testament has to say about the dead? It just says they go to the place of departed. Doesn't give us any detail. In the New Testament, we find out much detail about the dead because it reveals that the dead go to Hades, or they'll hear the Hebrew word is shield that you find in verse 10, the grave. And you get the picture of the detail in Luke 16 where Lazarus and the rich man die and the rich man goes to the place of torment and Lazarus the beggar goes to the place of comfort, the bosom of the father, right? Bosom of Abraham. And there he says, you know, Father Abraham, let him dip his finger in cool water to cool my tongue. For I'm in these torments. He says, son, you had everything in life. There's a gulf between us. You cannot come here. He cannot go there. But I have brothers. Send him. No, no, no. One, that's it. They have Moses. They have the scriptures. They don't believe. They'll never believe someone comes from the dead. How interesting. We get a lot of detail now about the people who die without Christ. Uh, they are in torment. They can't come back. They do have memory. And they regret not having made the right decision. It's pretty awesome. So when Solomon is speaking here that the dead know not, he's speaking regarding the limited revelation that God gave in the Old Testament. Not that he's wrong. He said the dead have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. They are no longer present to receive the benefit of this world. Why? They're not living. It's very simple. They are soon forgotten in the passing of time. Now, I know that you like to think that people aren't going to forget you, but, you know, few of our loved ones will. The dead can no longer manifest their emotions. Verse 6 says, their passions through their physical bodies, their love, their hate, their envy have ceased with them in the world. Why? Because they've passed on. They're no longer here. Death finalizes everything. Their activities have ceased in this world as they knew it. The passing from this life to the next seals a person's eternity 
Life is a gift of God to accept him. For that reason, Paul says that we persuade men knowing the terror of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.11. We know what awaits the lost person. So we pray, we persuade, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you to come to Christ because we know what will happen to you if you don't come to Christ. You will be eternally separated from God at death, physical death. The observation of life and death is to value life. Take advantage of it. Thirdly, he gives us the exhortation for life in view of death, verse 7 through 10. In verse 7 and 8, first of all, he says, man is to enjoy the blessings in life. The individual is to eat bread with joy and his wine with merry heart. The ability to labor should result in being thankful. Just that you have health to be able to work, you should be thankful to God. The greatest gift that you can have besides salvation and your wife is your health. If you don't have health, nothing matters. You can be the wealthiest person, nothing matters. And yet, if you have health, you have everything. You can enjoy anything. The partaking of one's provision should result in satisfaction and contentment, not greed. But in our fallen nature, if we're not careful, it turns to greed, right? We want more. The reason is that God has already accepted your works. Notice that. The implication being that the very ability to work is from God. If God has given you health and ability to work, do you think he minds you partaking of your bread? Of course not. <laughs> the implication being that the very provisions from one's labor is God's blessing and approval to partake. He gives us health. He gives us a job. He gives us a check. We buy groceries. Are we not to eat of them? Sure we are. But notice he never says we're to be glad and we're never to live for these things. But he says nothing wrong with partaking the fruit, right? Now notice the individual is to take part in feasting also when, he, when it calls for it. Verse 8. The white garment speaks of joyous feasting. Uh, the oil on the head speaks of celebration. So there will be times when we will be able to feast and celebrate at weddings, at, at anniversary, whatever. It's great. Have a great time. Nothing wrong with that. But notice, secondly, in verse 9, he says that man is to enjoy his wife. Oh, this is good. I'm so glad. You know, I'm glad I wasn't born a monk. <laughs> I thank God for my wife. Uh, and I sure hope that you guys are having as much fun with your wives as I am with mine, guys. And wives, the same with you. God has given you to each other to enjoy life, man. He is to live joyfully with the wife of his youth all the days. Mark this well. He repeats it. His vain life. <laughs> God created man with the need of companionship in order to be complete according to God's design. It's not good the man should be alone. I will make a help me comparable to him, right? She completes me. She helps me. She puts everything together. I need to understand that. God created the marriage covenant for health and strength in society, a healthy and a strong society. We see our society, it's thrown marriage right out the window. The society is sick. It's not healthy, and it certainly is not strong. It's weak. God created marriage to raise godly children, a godly seed. Remember Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 through 16? God gets down on the men. He says, you guys, you guys are a bunch of dogs. 
So you guys come to the altar and you're crying with all these tears, but you guys don't mean it. You've put away your wife of your youth. You've got this new Betty over here and you, you know, you think you're holy. And you're coming to me and saying, oh, praise God, praise God, thank Jesus, this and that. I says, get out of here. I don't even hear your prayers. He says, why did I give you the covenant for? I'll tell you why, very simply. First of all, to complete you. Secondly, I want godly children. Now, we know that our children have a free will, and you can raise them in the Lord, and they can rebel, but at least you've done what you're supposed to, right? Then God won't get you. He'll get them. Read Samuel. God told Samuel that he was going to get Eli because Eli never restrained his children. Parents, you better restrain your children. If they walk away from God, God will get them. But if you don't restrain them, he'll get you and them. Honest. It's important you do what you're supposed to do as a parent. And so marriage is an incredible place to have a godly home. Enjoyment. There's difficult times. Life is difficult enough. We've already seen it's not fair. But you're there to be strong together, to help one another. I hope you can cry with each other. I hope you can laugh with each other. I hope that, you know, it's a fun place to be. Because if you're not in Christ and you're not enjoying it, it's like playing football without a helmet. Not much fun. He is to recognize that she was a gift given by God. Notice that. Given. She's a gift. Whoa. He is to acknowledge the privilege and live responsible in life regarding that privilege. He only enjoys this privilege. Notice, under the sun. Two times the phrase repeated. The man who lives on this earth enjoys marriage. Once he dies, it's over with. Now, some of the things we don't understand, but that's part of it. You know, you may be so in love with your wife or husband, oh, but I, I can't imagine we're in heaven. How, how, how can you not be married? You know, but like I tell my, one of my little boy when he was little, three, four, five, five, five years old or something, he's laying in bed one night and I was, go and pray with him. And he's, going, and he's all bummed out. He starts crying. What's the matter, Rex? He goes, oh, Dad, I don't want the Lord to come back to rapture. He's only about five years old. I said, how come? He says, oh, you know, I, I want to be with my friends and we have so much fun and all that. I said, Ex, are you having fun here? Yeah. I said, it's going to be a lot more fun up there. If you're having fun in marriage here, don't get bummed out you're not going to be married there. It's going to be a lot more fun over there. We don't know how, we don't know what, but it's going to be a lot better. If you think this is good, wait till you get there. That's going to be better. We don't know, but it's going to be better. Notice thirdly in verse 10, man is to be diligent while he lives. He is to do all things in life to the fullest extent and with the greatest effort in order to what? Do the best job. The phrase with all your might implies diligence and excellence. Are you a diligent and excellent Christian in whatever you do, where you work, what you commit yourself to? Or do you kind of just, well, you know, what the heck, God knows. I hope you're diligent. Whatever implies all things in life. The reason given is that this life under the sun is when we can what? benefit not after death the benefit is now we have already stated that solomon is speaking from a limited revelation so we don't have to go over this again but we also know from the new testament that sheol and the grave is a place of the departed spirit now we don't go there anymore because right here in verse 10 he says you know then you go to the grave where you're going 
We go instantly present before the Lord as I said. But the people who don't know Christ, they go to a place of torment. The place of departed spirits. Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek. And they wait there a thousand years after the millennial reign so that God judges them in the white throne judgment to cast them into the lake of fire. Hell and death will be cast into the lake of fire. You do not cease to exist, people. When you die physically, you will be before Christ or you will be separated from Christ for all eternity without a second chance. That's what the Bible teaches. Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven, paradise. Paradise was where? Down in Sheol. Remember what Jesus told the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. So he died. He went down there. Peter says that he preached to the captives, scooped them up. Ephesians 4 says he led captivity captive, and they're now where? They're in the third heaven where God dwells. What is the third heaven now? Paradise. No longer down there. Because the minute you die and I die as a Christian, we're instantly present before the Lord. But if you're not, you're eternally lost. What an awesome picture. Hudson Taylor said, if your father and mother, your sister or brother, if the very cat and dog in your house are not happier for you being a Christian, it is a question whether you really are one. What do people say when they see you come? Oh, my God, here he comes. Let's get out of here. <laughs> do they say that? Or are they happy when they see you come? Now, we're all different. Some are more serious than others, but hopefully you're not a grump or a sourpuss, you know what I mean? Hopefully you're blessing the people. Are you taking advantage of the most basic things in life and enjoying them? If not, you need to. The scriptures give us the prescription in 1 Peter 3. Let me read that for you real quick. Verse 10 through 12. He says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him Seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's a good prescription for life if you love it. If you want to enjoy it, if you love life, right there. Very simple. Are you enjoying your maiden life? If not, then you need to go before the Lord, first of all, individually, and ask God for your forgiveness and ask him to give you wisdom and to crucify your flesh. And then you both have to come before the Lord and recognize that unless you die to yourselves and unless you submit to each other in the fear of God, as Ephesians 5.21 says, you're never going to make it and you're never going to have any fun. And that's just the way it is. Too many people in the church today are self-centered, they're carnal. And they're so interested in blaming one another. Listen to me. You're merciful that God hasn't struck both of you dead. Or me. We deserve hell. And we need to learn to be merciful and gracious to each other. But we also need to see a turnaround. And we need to see progress. And we need to see commitment in Christ from each other. And then we can be graceful to each other. And that only happens by coming through the cross. No other way. Are you diligent in what you do? Or are you always irresponsible? If you are, then you need to take care of it. You're to present your life a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Diligence. So the exhortation for life is in view of life and death. It's to enjoy it. Enjoy life. So Solomon has given us these three important truths regarding life and death. Pretty serious matter. The proclamation about the life of the righteous is that they are in the hands of God. The observation of life and death is to value life. 
and the exhortation for life in view of death is to enjoy life. How are we doing? May God give us wisdom. Pastor Xavier Uris, closing out our time today by summarizing King Solomon's positive perspective on both life and death. Now, today's study is titled Life in View of Death and is available on CD for just $4. And by the way, everything we shared last time will be included as well. So it makes a convenient way to study the messages more in depth and at your own pace. So the title to ask for once more is Life in View of Death, or simply mention today's date. Request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us monitor the effectiveness of our broadcast ministry. And then join Pastor Xavier Reese for more Simple Truths next time right here. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 